This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Welcome back, everybody. We've got a special co-host in the house today, our very own executive producer, Charlotte Cameron. We are so excited to have her in here today. Charlotte, welcome. Thanks, Robbie. I'm so excited to be uh, to be in here in a different capacity today. I know. It's so good to have you here. She's a delightful person. She's superbly professional. She has a psych background, which lends itself perfectly to our mission. So today, Charlotte and I interviewed Jen Batchelor, the founder and CEO of Ken Euphorics. Ken Euphorics is a new beverage company, you know, somewhat looking to replace alcohol. I think that is kind of the initial mission that, that was, was thought of as they were creating this. And now it just is something that people want to drink. It is what they call a mood enhancer. So it includes adaptogens and nootropics and botanicals and herbals. And it's a very, very healthy and natural way to boost our moods. Jen will dig deeper into how all that works. First of all, how wonderful of a person she is. And I, and I mean that more so in the sense of how fun she is to talk to. You know, she's just full of energy. She's obviously super smart, laughing, you know, jiving with us, having a fun time doing the interview. Like that's music to, to our ears, you know, as we do a podcast. So that stands out more than anything. Second, I really liked how she spoke about culture. You know, she grew up in Saudi Arabia, so she has this Eastern, you know, philosophy foundation. And, you know, there's this this wholeness to her and this quest for wholeness and connection. When she kind of dives into the various cultures across our globe, uh, ultimately, but starting where, where she grew up and began her life, it was super interesting to hear uh, how she spoke about that, more so from like a genetic aspect and a chromosomal aspect. Is that a word? Chromosomal? Is that the right <laughs> word? Chromosome chromosomal, how that plays into the creation and the evolution and the development of different cultures to me was just fascinating. I've studied cultures before. I've studied sociology and, and I've never really heard it talked about in that manner. And it just, it lit me up. Oh, me too. I mean, I was so excited to speak to her and it, it did not disappoint. She's really interesting and I don't know, just brought a lot of information to the table that I don't know that we really had in our back pocket before. No, I don't think we have. I think this is all, you know, fairly brand new. It, it might fall under a category that we've covered, but the, just the info and the details and all of that stuff was just, it's so informative and interesting. Yeah, this was such a fun interview. I really can't wait for everybody to take a listen. I know, me neither. Let's do it. Okay, so we are here with Jen Batchelor from Ken Euphorics, otherwise known as Jen of Ken. Welcome to Champagne Problems, Jen. Thank you so much, Robbie. It's so good to be on. Well, we appreciate it. It is our pleasure. We have followed you for a, a good while now, and we all love you. Not really in a creepy, well, probably pretty <laughs> creepy. We love what you do. We love your mission. We've, you know, we started the podcast and our mission has kind of evolved and become more detailed. We realized that what you do and how you do it really aligns with us. So we knew we wanted to get you on. And then all of a sudden, Ryan and I were talking because he just moved to Charlotte. Big shout out to Ryan Junta. And he was like, man, you got to talk to Jen. You got to talk to Jen. And I was like, oh man, absolutely. would love to. So Stars aligned. Wonderful. I love it. Well, our are definitely in sync. So it just brings me so much joy to get to, to chat with y'all because you know exactly where I'm coming from. And I know your audience does too. So Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so let's, let's inform them. First off, let's just get to know Jen Batchelor. Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Education, interests, those kinds of things. If you could do a quick bio. Oh, sure. It's a long and windy road. So I'll give you the cliff notes. But I was born in Miami, Florida. My dad was in aviation, he started out in the Air Force, and then ended up working for Saudia Airlines, um, which is the royal family's airline in, in the, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, so we ended up moving there with him when I was about eight years old. And we lived there for about a decade. So Holy my cow. interests <laughs> were vast. I at one point wanted to be a marine biologist. Then I thought about being a teacher because I saw that all my teachers got to travel everywhere. 
I just really love travel. I love cultures. I love rituals. Clearly, that's just been something that has been so prominent in my life, just, you know, exploring them, respecting them. Um, I just have so much reverence for the way that people come through their upbringing and their cultural and sort of genetic, you know, the poetry that is built into their chromosomes. Like I just, it comes out through your life. You know, you might even negate it and, and reject it a little bit when you're growing up, but then um, it's sort of inevitable for it to impact everything that you do. And that's very much the case with me. You know, when I came back from Saudi, I brought all of those traditions and that whole um, sort of vast and varied worldview into everything that I did, um, for better and for worse. So <laughs> that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> wow. I've never heard it put that way. That was so eloquent and interesting way of thinking about genetics and chromosomes and culture combined. Yeah. I'm kind of learning all that about myself as we speak. You moved there when you were eight. I assume, did you come back and forth to America and, and did that kind of spark a lot of the travel and that kind of thing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we were very fortunate. You know, my we didn't have two nickels to rub together, but my dad got to fly us all for free. And so we sort of traveled everywhere uh, as, as far and wide as we possibly could. Uh, spent a lot of time in Indonesia, Turkey, Europe, Africa. I mean, we, we really did it up. I feel very fortunate to have that in my background. We, we would come back to the States to see family twice a year. Um, so definitely got our miles in there. But for the most part, it was like weekend trips to, you know, Bahrain and Lebanon and um, just really exploring oh the Middle East as well. Living the dream. Good Lord. <laughs> that is so cool. And then where'd you go to school? So in Saudi, there was an international baccalaureate school, of course, where we were sort, sort of all lumped together. My graduating class was like 90 people. And you know, coming back to the States, it was funny because I, I ended up coming back here um, as a result of circumstance rather than choice. Um, my brother was was born here uh, and it was just, you know, a year or so before 9-11. And for me, it was like, well, I'll come to be with him and then I'll go back to Europe and I'll go study there and, you know, continue my travels. You know, fate had other plans. And so I decided to stick, stick around and go to college uh, stateside and um, I wanted that quintessential university vibe. I wanted that like quintessential bricks, you know, true brick and mortar, like brick, southern, uh -huh. insular campus where you literally like where you can't drive through oh, the yeah. campus. You're just on campus with your with your kin of kin and <laughs> your friends that you make at school and you're living on campus. And so um, <laughs> that was what I chose. So I went to Florida State University for my undergrad. Oh, nice. Okay, Jen, so let's talk Ken Euphorics as I pound one here. You know, I got to say, I, I do drink them. I'm not just going to sit here and, and pump you up because you're on. But Ryan introduced me to them. I started drinking them before you and I, you and I even talked. And the first thing I noticed that was coming into my podcasts, I was able to recall words better. You know? There you go. <laughs> there you go. So I drink them before every podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love hearing that because at the end of the day, when we're together with friends, when we're sitting at a bar, why do we need to go and make ourselves even sillier, right? <laughs> less present. Silly. That's great. Less everything. Why not help ourselves come back into ourselves? remember things, reminisce better, make a, bit, a bigger impression and make a better memory while we're sitting with the people we love the most. Um, you know, that's never been more relevant than today, especially if we're doing like a virtual Zoom happy hour or even a client meeting where you just want to, you know, do a toast virtually, whatever it is. Like you want to be super present. You want to be articulate, when, especially when, you know, you're taking clients to drinks or you're on a first date or something like that. So I mean, great segue to why we even started Kin and why we formulated the way we did. We just wanted to leave you better off. We wanted to leave the experience of drinking with a friend actually improve your life. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why not? 
<laughs> Jen, when Robbie told us that you had agreed to come on and, and interview with us, we were so excited. And I, I told him that I had been to a wedding recently where the bride who does drink alcohol had decided not to drink because she wanted to be clear headed and kind of joked knowing I was a fan of the brand and ended up sending me a picture afterwards and said sort of, you know, my, my wedding memories brought to you by Kenya Forks. <laughs> so whatever you all are trying to do, putting the product into mainstream social situations, it's it seems to have really worked. And that's definitely one of those quintessential moments, right? Where you want to have your wits about you and be present to what's happening, but also can so easily easily get caught up in the excitement of being celebrated and celebrating with family and friends. I just think you guys have done an amazing job of creating a product and marketing it so it can be part of mainstream social behavior. I'm really excited to learn how you guys have done that so well. Thank you so much. And that was by design. Obviously, we did not skimp at all in terms of building our brand. We didn't, you know, just outsource away our logo. We didn't, you know, take the minimal route, which, by the way, when brands were being built back in 2015, 2016, when we were first contemplating this, it was the peak of minimalism. It was let's do hunter greens and really simple sans serif fonts for those design nerds out there. Um, <laughs> I certainly was hell bent on making sure that the logo was sexy and sophisticated and that it could outlive us all, that it could actually just be timeless in that sense, that it showed respect for the type of person who would decide not to drink for any reason on whatever occasion, right? And so um, I just wanted it, I wanted you to feel really good holding a can, a bottle, anything that we made, because that making that choice to not drink for whatever reason, I know from experience, it's very empowering. And I don't just want a Shirley Temple in my hand necessarily every time, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, as, and I great, be... as great as they are <laughs> exactly exactly not not knocking Shirley Temples but at the end of the day when I can hold something that sparks a conversation and inspires someone else I mean that's a slam dunk for me so um grateful to you guys for for noticing that and recognizing it I, I do feel like it's part of what brings people together around the drink um when it's out and about so what was the point where there became no room for alcohol Great question. I always think I reflect on this a lot because I don't know if it was one particular breaking point moment or if it was just a I've had enough. I do remember I had I was very, very impacted by a quote that I read about Warren Buffett, where he started talking about how he always envied the morning people. Yeah. He said, I'm just not a morning person. I'm not a morning person. Look at all these morning people and what they're able to accomplish. Until one day he said, if I want to be a morning person, I just have to tell myself I'm a morning person. I have to decide today I am a morning person. <laughs> and from then on, this is a man who wakes up at you know 4.30 in the morning, gets his McDonald's on his way to work. I mean, he, he's a creature of habit and he did that by not only sheer force of will, but understanding that thoughts are very powerful. And, you know, for me, it, it definitely took that moment of just reflection and looking myself in the mirror and saying, do I want to be a person who runs their life or do I want to be a person whose life is run by alcohol? Frankly, was the number one stumbling block in my life. That and toxic people that I kept around me. And by the way, the toxic people were the people I was Come with. <laughs> That's right. I got it. <laughs> you know the drill. Yes. Good Lord. Yeah, I think it was just that moment. And I wish I could remember the date and the time and everything. But I remember that being the tipping point where it was like, oh, yeah, I do have a lot more power and more skill in this than yeah. I'm giving myself credit. How has not drinking helped you perform at this high level with presentations, the speaking to crowds? It gives me anxiety watching what you do. <laughs> <laughs> me too. And yeah. Yeah. Five years ago, I, I would have been paralyzed by the thought of any of it. Faith, the energy, again, the perspective. It, it, is, it is really crazy to think about how much self-doubt I was filled with when I mm. was a regular drinker. Yeah. Constant self-doubt, constant anxiety about the future, wrong thinking, just for me, right? Just like mm -hmm. negative perspectives limited beliefs. I mean, all the things that you do hear about when, it, when you get into a really good self-help book binge or, or any of these programs. But at the end of the day, it's, it is really true. And even in my first 
experience with limiting alcohol in my life or eventually uh, eliminating it for a spell. I think for me it was, you know, okay, well, I just need to fight this demon. This is this demon that I'm up against and it's this it's this big fight of me against this big beast that seems unbeatable. I did a lot of that through sheer will. And I think once I learned about the Vedic philosophy again, once I was able to just pare it down into its elemental things and not be against it, not be at war with it, but be at peace with it and understand that, okay, well, it is limiting me from rising up and being my best self. It's literally giving me less energy. It's clouding my thinking. If I could just give myself nine months where I eliminate this thing and fill my life with helpful things, let me just see where my life goes. And that love that my life was filled with, that clarity, that energy just became the, it filled that void and, and then some, like my cup overfloweth, uh, right? And, and I was like, what is this world? This is fucking awesome. I feel great. The people around me are dope. Like oh, I'm inspired. Um, so that then of course becomes the fulfilling thing. It's not, I was going to say, then that becomes the addiction. It's really not. That becomes the fulfilling thing that helps you say, okay, you can stop now. Stop the hamster wheel thing. Yeah. Don't need addictions anymore. Huh. I mean, I've been alcohol free for 15 years now and there is a, a population that doesn't try to teeter into, you know, mimicking alcohol, that, that world. But I was not one of those people. I drank NA beers as soon as I, you know, cleaned, clean myself up and it was good for me but now there's an option of something to drink that actually does enhance mood and that is new and that is unique and that is different than anything I've ever seen before of course you got your Red Bulls but I mean I think those things probably are killing everybody <laughs> in, the ne- in the next 20 years but now we have something healthy and holy cow it's it's really exciting and by the way like I am that person I don't know what it is about me I am very thirsty <laughs> I am that person who needs a drink in my hand at all times of every social encounter or not. Even during my workday, I always have something in my hand. And so, you know, with Kin, the way that we thought about it, and we can dive into dosing if you guys are interested in, in hearing a little bit more about how the ingredients come together. The idea is that you should have a couple of drinks, just like theoretically in the world, the ritual, before you're really into the social experience, before you're like forgetting that you even have a drink in your hand and you're completely focused on the people and the environment and the experience, right? So for me, I'll have a couple of spritzes at four or five, the happy hour um, occasion, and then I'll go into non-alc beers. And then I'll you know yeah. continue to explore because that's my prerogative. That's my joy. That's my interest, right? But I feel so good doing it. It's not like I'm counting drinks at that point, which I think is is really what puts the power back in, in the hands of the drinker. Mm, that's so interesting. And I think that you know so many of our listeners drink or are currently renegotiating their relationship with alcohol. Can you talk a little bit more from, from your perspective or maybe this, the collective perspective of this group you have working together at Kin? What are some of the benefits that you think people might be able to anticipate experiencing or seeing when they cut out or start renegotiating their own relationship with alcohol? For sure. In a nutshell, There are a number of cognitive benefits, right? So we thought first, if we're trying to catch a feel, right? If we're trying to feel something, change our mood, whatever it is, what is actually responsible for mood, right? Like it's the endocrine system in the brain. We have to acknowledge that before we start to design for an experience around the types of ingredients that we use at Kin and and ultimately what led to us using things like nootropics and adaptogenic herbs. You know, you talk about alcohol consumption, all you can really accomplish with alcohol is getting drunk. That is what happens in whatever form. We can call it wine, we can call it tequila, we can call it whiskey, beer, whatever you want to call it. At the end of the day, the psychoactive function in those drinks is derivative of alcohol or comes right from from alcohol. And it's a GABA induction. There's a lot of things that happen. All of it happens in the brain. But what do we talk about when we talk about alcohol? We talk about the liver. That's it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. My liver's going to pay for this tomorrow. Okay, but your brain mass is also going to be less. You're, you're also going to be dehydrated. Your brain's going to be dehydrated, brain fog, sleepiness, all of the things. So, you know, all of the, all of the, the pain points that we talk about 
again, to connect the dots uh, happen in, in our hormone imbalance um, and in our brain. So for, for me, it was, okay, what are we trying to accomplish? Just high level. We're just trying to help people feel good, relaxed, talkative, dancey, whatever it is that we all believe alcohol is helping us accomplish. We found out something really fascinating about the 4 p.m., 5 p.m. hour, both from the Eastern tradition of, if you guys are familiar with the circadian rhythm, you know, how the body engages, how the mind engages with, you know, the time of day, placement of the sun, our exposure to the sun, right? All of that affects our mood. And also from the neurochemical standpoint, what's happening to the brain at the 4 or 5 p.m. hour, it's the same thing, right? It's symbiotic. You can call it Western, Eastern. It's happening, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so part of what happens to us, of course, there's the siesta moment at 3, 4 p.m. where our bodies are like, maybe we need a break. And that's in a normal everyday lifestyle setting, right? Where we're, we're all living in urban environments. We're stressed the second we wake up because we're checking our phones. Things are happening in the world. So when the altered state itself is just living our lives, it takes a lot more to get back to homeostasis. So at 4 p.m. when we're like, hey, we need a nap and we just keep pushing and we're like, screw it. I'm just going to get a glass of wine. We actually hurt ourselves more because we're not allowing ourselves to get back to neutral. So what we were designing for with Kin was let's get people back to neutral. On the neurochemical side, we're saying depletion of dopamine, depletion of serotonin. Can we boost those two neurotransmitters, which are responsible for it? I call it like the bliss surfboard. On one side, it's reward. On the other side, it's like willpower, charisma, charm, confidence, pleasure, right? And so how can we restock those in our brain so we're back to neutral and people actually feel that lift and then energize and add some other benefits from there? So yeah, we, we were just hyper-focused on the one ritual and then we sort of moved to different parts of the day and different social rituals that we all encounter together um as a community golly mm. i really love it i love it um <laughs> i love the mood the discussion of moods because you took it to a whole nother level and but when i think about moods i always i work in mental health and i always tell my wife there needs to be a t-shirt that says moods are underrated because nobody talks about moods <laughs> you know and and i always use the example i can walk down the street and and see a tree and if I, you know, woke up on the wrong side of the bed or, or whatever you want to call it, I'm sure you could explain that chemically, but either way, I'm in a shitty mood and I'm looking at a tree and I could see the like dead bark and I'll see like the, the, the leaves and the, you know, the darkness of it. And then in a good mood, it's like, ah, I see the life in it and it's green and it's, you know, and it's, it's all mood. There's this filter that the mood creates. And I, I love the fact that you've got something that is chemically increasing that without all the consequences. Yeah. You'll see on my social media, I, I talk a lot about perspective um, because people, I talk a lot about a, the, the soft magic, right? Of willpower and perspective and state of mind. Our culture treats those things as part and parcel of this, this like broader umbrella of like magical thinking, right? It's like, oh yeah, if I only had the stamina, the, the mental power to do it. And like, it's some magical thing. No, they're it's a tangible thing that you can affect change around. Yeah. It's very tangible, right? So shifting perspective, literally, as it's just the act of switching from a parasympathetic nervous system to sympathetic nervous system, right? Puts you in a totally different frame of mind to your, to your point of how you're going to perceive that tree. Is it ominous? Is it flourishing? It's the glass half full, glass half empty. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I don't know. For me, it was like, well, if I can hack this, if I can actually just nourish myself in this way just by focusing on it and by incorporating the right ingredients that's empowering to me even if it's not a precise you know even if I don't have a guarantee of like where I'm going to end up like what mood I'm or not just the mood but like how I'm going to feel right am I going to be able to be chipper and happy with that person that I don't want to see maybe not but at least it doesn't bother me so much <laughs> when they do the thing that bothers yep. me. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yep. all, the, all the things. <laughs> you can soften things a little bit so you have that buffer. <laughs> and that to me was, you know, I have a 10-year, you know, as a meditator, dabble in all kinds of modalities, you know, specifically transcendental meditation really gifted me that buffer. And breath work, meditation, I do put them on a similar plane as um, nootropics, as, as the ingredients and, and the euphorics approach that we've taken is very similar to that, just 
sometimes for some people in some occasions is more convenient than sitting down for 20 minutes and closing your eyes, you know? Yeah. I would love to know, how did you start going down the path of so many of those modalities? Uh, I I understand that you did live in the East and the culture probably lended itself to that. How did you start learning about all this, this stuff? I mean, these chemicals, how did you get into that? Sure. I mean, it started just by immersing myself in meditation. That certainly was, um, was the big unlock for me. And the question was, you know, what's the right meditation strategy for me? And this is pre headspace, right? But like, I think we're all of the same mind. Like, how do I get in where I fit in? I'm having a lot of trouble just sitting in silence. So there must be a method that will help me be a good meditator. And then you find out like when you're finally free of that notion is when you realize like we're the only things that get in our way, right? When Especially when it comes to meditation, just that thinking like I can be good at meditation, that's the work. That's the, th- the thing that meditation unravels and like shreds up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not saying it's yeah. like... It's, it's not a competition. No, and you don't have to reach nirvana <laughs> to, to appreciate that. You can actually just get into a rhythm of, you know, conversing with your intuition, your internal knowledge. So it did take me a, a, a bit of practice, uh, a bit, meaning like twice a day for <laughs> five straight years. years. right. Yeah. And then... Um, journaling, obviously, and then going and immersing myself. I went and I studied Ayurvedic medicine at a program in the Berkshires in Massachusetts that is extremely comprehensive. So we dove into everything. And of course, with with the um, intention of really allowing you to choose something that's calling you within the the realm of the Vedic um, sort of medicine books. There are many, many volumes that cover everything from plastic surgery, if you can believe it, um, to herbalism, pulse reading. There's just a lot that you can cover. And for me, Vedic psychology was the most interesting, just re- really resonated with me. And, and I think overall, the school really reminds you, um, you know, this is not woo-woo. This is a 3,500 that we know of in terms of documentation, 3,500-year-old practice, proven practice that is now starting to be proven out by Western medicine and science. And we may not be able to patent all of these things and make money through <laughs> through the realm of pharmaceuticals, but they're real. And so I've started becoming obsessed with being able to marry these modalities, the Eastern modalities that obviously are rooted in so much beautiful tradition um, and are, are very sacred with biohacking in the world of precision, you know, sort of Western world biohacking mentality of, okay, I'm going to use this much dosage of this nootropic and this much of vitamin C, and I'm going to hack my way into, you know, being able to wake up in the morning, whatever it is, Um, because they are symbiotic. And I didn't understand why they were relegated and like literally for me in, in my industry, like two separate bottles, why no one had thought to merge these two philosophies, why no one had thought to merge these two ingredients. And so or ingredient schools. And and so I started really chatting with people from from all realms. And and my co-founder, Matt Cobble, who, you know, is a, is a brilliant mind when it comes to formulation and just thinking about how things come together in a completely non-discriminatory way, right? Like, no, if these two ingredients work and there's a synergistic effect, like that's worth looking at. We started dabbling with a lot of things early on and just came out on the other side with um, High Road, which was the first the first ever formulation and just started proving it out one by one. We talked to neuropharmacologists who started talking to endocrinologists, herbalists, food scientists, and all these people. How do we create the most symbiotic formula that is rooted in integrity and that allows us to use as little of the, of each ingredient as possible with the most benefit. Yeah. And we just kind of pretended like if alcohol didn't exist, (sighs) how do we achieve? Yeah. How do we get here? Wow. Yeah. Jen, you know, knowing knowing that you were coming on and had studied that school of thinking, I, I did some research on Ayurvedic psychology, and at least my understanding from that research is that there's sort of a baseline starting point, being happy in your mind and in your heart and in alignment with yourself in terms of starting to look at what works for you. Is there any research or information from your perspective about how alcohol interferes with that process and can get in the way of really being in alignment with yourself? It's so individualistic that it's it's tough to have a blanket answer for that. But it's a really, really good question and something that I asked myself a lot as I was going through this training because for me, it was like I know intuitively that alcohol 
is misaligned or the effects of alcohol are putting me in a state of misalignment with my goals, what I want to achieve, who I really want to be. And so I just started looking at it. And I think that's one of the gifts that Vedic philosophy um, really gives us all is this lens and this perspective on the world that is so gracious. There's so much grace in being able to just deconstruct everything that's going on in your life and everyone in your life and just size them up by their elemental values, right? It's not like this is a bad person, this is a good person, this is a good behavior, bad behavior, bad ingredient, good ingredient. It's like, no, this ingredient has a lot of fire and I have a lot of fire. And when I mix the two, what do we always say? You can't fight fire with fire, right? You're going to come out the other (laughs) end feeling really out of balance because what your fire actually needs is water, is cooling, right, is nurturing. And so I think that was like, even just at its basic, basic level, I was like, oh, alcohol is actually throwing me out of balance, just chemically and elementally speaking. So that made sense to me because I would look at some of my friends who would drink and nothing, they didn't have necessarily a problem. Yeah, they didn't experience what I experienced necessarily. I think that for starters was a wake-up call for me. It's just like, okay, well, forget about what I want to eliminate from my life. What do I want to introduce more of that keeps me in better balance, that keeps me in my power where I'm able to be grounded, but I'm also able to be creative. I just started incorporating more of those things into my life, and the more I did that, the less room there was for alcohol. God, man, there's so much there. So much there. We dig into alcohol culture quite a bit here. And it's so fun to listen to you talk about that because, you know, where you're from and, and, and as you mentioned, you know, early on, kind of the, the chromosomes and the genetics of culture, alcohol culture and I call it Eastern culture, they just butt heads. They're just opposites, essentially. You know, alcohol is misleading. It makes you feel all these things that ultimately create the opposite in you. And then we have this country, world, whatever you want to call it, where everybody's drinking it. And not everybody, but you know what I mean. It's very prominent. And so, you know, it begs the question, what when we look at our societies and, and, and worldly societies and we, we see all these issues and all the stuff going on in the world that is scary, you know, it begs the question, like, what's going on out there? What, what's, what's the result of these cult- this, this culture that we're all kind of stuck in? We're in a catch-22. We're in a catch-22 right now because two things are, I don't want to say against us because I, I like to think positive, um, but there are two fundamental realities that make it so that alcohol is extremely tantalizing for the Western world. And believe me, that beer is also very pervasive in the East now. We have absolutely brought alcohol all over the world by now. The first, alcohol itself, that feeling of suppression of the things that make the world sharp and scary Mm. and annoying, that's actually a, a surge of something called GABA in the brain, right? So when you have GABA in the brain and you're suppressing the anxiety for the moment, you're suppressing that understanding that you are biochemically poisoning your body and your mind, which is what the GABA does so that the body can recalibrate and decide, okay, is this, what is this poison? Is this poison deathly? Uh, you know, what is going to happen here? So you get this feeling of GABA. It also plays directly into our dopamine stores. It actually increases dopamine in the moment. Dopamine creates addictive behavior. Dopamine is a little, it's a little sugar reward from the mice experiments, right? It's the thing that we're like, oh, I need more of that. And I need more and more and more of that to feel that good, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you have this like insatiable threshold, right? This, this like, this thing that you can have, you need more of something in order to feel um, what that first hit made you feel. You know, you have that paradox happening where it's like, you don't even know what your limit is. And this is more pervasive for certain people than other people, right? Like we all know that there are different um, spectrums. And of course, genetics plays a major role. The second thing that we have that makes this in one ingredient extremely sticky is that for 10,000 some odd years, we have socialized the ritual of drinking alcohol amongst friends as a celebratory thing. 
And even in fact, in the beginning, drinking alcohol was a portal to the divine. It was a way for you to actually alter your state so you could communicate with God and the gods and then come back down to earth and lead your country, lead your empire. So there's a lot of things culturally associated with drinking that make us feel divine, that make us feel mm -hmm. socially accepted and socially in the in-tribe. And that is all very addictive. We are programmed to be social beings. We want to be together. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is actually part of the alcoholic rit ritual that I wanted to continue. Uh, you know, Charlotte, you mentioned it. Like, how are we able to, to do something that, can, you know, is non-alcoholic but is still so social? We wouldn't have launched it if it didn't have that in, built in to the, to the program, whether it was the format of the drink, the taste of the drink, the look of the drink. Because we knew that we still need to be able to give people that social healing, as we like to call it, the social nourishment of being together at a bar, at a party, at home, toasting and having a moment together. It's invaluable. We live off that. That's literally, you know, mana to us and prana. It's life force. They're, they're important. And that's why it is such an uphill battle for someone who wants to be. I mean, there's so many other factors, as you know, but from a societal standpoint, I would say from a collective consciousness standpoint, that is why it remains very pervasive. My mind goes to those early years. We are a social being. Why, when we're 11, 12, 13, 14, are we so uncomfortable in those social situations? Not all of us, I understand. And maybe not why. I kind of know the answer. We have to learn how to be that way. We have to learn how to communicate and to react and converse. But because it's so prevalent in our society, we tend to experiment with alcohol in those ages, which aid in that discomfort and then leads to everything you just said. Dependence, I need it, I can't do it without it. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're decades later in life and, and you still may not know how to communicate, converse, you know, feel comfortable in those situations without it. And I, I'm, I'm not, I wish I was an expert because I'm about to have a 13 year old in 13 years. So <laughs> I understand. that's not a lot of time. Apparently I'm hearing that as a parent that goes by in a blink. Oh my God. I've got an 11 year old. It's, uh, I mean, literally around the corner. Yeah. Yes. You know, exactly. And you know what? I, I think it is at least in my, I can only speak to my own experience. For me, it was a lack of spiritual sanctity in my own life. As a 13-year-old, you're, you're coming of age, as they say, right? You're, you're coming into, for me, uh, my womanhood. And it's a lot of responsibility. You, you have to have a certain external perspective of the world after having 13 years of looking internally. My family provides everything for me. Everything I get is internal facing. And now everything I have to get is external facing, right? And so you need almost that extra boost of serotonin to lower inhibition and have that charisma and that confidence. And you need that dopamine to have that validation that you're doing right by said external society, right? Said peer group of friends, said boyfriend, said X, Y, Z. And so alcohol provides a lot of that in the moment. That's the trick. It really does give that until it doesn't. And as a woman, you know, I can only speak to how I felt looking back, you know, especially in college, it's like my alcohol consumption in the moment gives me that liquid courage, gives me that confidence, makes me feel like I'm part of this group or super charming. But when I look back in, in the morning, when I look back on my night, oh my gosh, was I obnoxious. And oh my gosh, these people really don't respect me as much as they did. And uh, Right? And here I thought I was being this empowered, enlightened woman, you know, this very cultured, sophisticated being, drinking half a bottle of wine yeah. and thinking that's what grownups do. So, you know, I think it is a little bit of we're really missing rites of passage in society today. We are over-glamorizing this world of rosé all day and look at this celebrity celebrity as i like to say um that's you know drinking in the bathtub and doing whatever it is that looks sexy on instagram but if we really talked about it you know 20 years ago if you were telling me i drink a half a bottle of wine to myself in the tub i'd be like okay you need help yeah <laughs> drinking wine. Yeah. 
it's dangerous. What are you doing? What are you doing? Um, <laughs> so the cultures are shifting, and I think as kids, we just want to emulate our heroes. And unfortunately, there's been yeah. there's been a you know a little bit more of an emphasis in the last twenty to thirty years of people drinking and, and really glamorizing that. So. I think that that yeah. just speaks to my story. I know it's different for everyone. Yeah, totally. I think that's probably speaks to a lot of stories. Let's transition a little. I would love to hear a little bit about your new partnership with Bella Hadid. Yes. Holy cow. Oh my it's Big gosh. deal. Big deal. I know. Good and Lord. I couldn't share it when we were chatting a couple months ago. We were like in the throes <laughs> of, of finalizing everything. But I mean, that speaks to who Bella is because, you know, we, we initialized our everything, just the initial conversation about partnering, what we would want to do together. I mean, this all started last fall. Um, so, and she's been extremely involved in the business since then. So even without everything sort of being buttoned up and who are the players and how are we going to do this and all the numbers and fun things that Ryan and, and Roger, our um, CFO, COO, and my right right hand, left brain, all of that um, had figured uh-huh. out we had already been working together, um, you know, on a, at least a weekly basis since, uh, since we first met. So it's been great. And, and in a lot of ways, it's, uh, it's almost business as usual here because we figured out a way to, to get to work together. Um, when we first started the partnership and she has a lot of amazing ideas, you know, this, this for both of us, it was really important for her to be able to come in as a creative partner and not as a spokesperson per se, right? Yeah. We we both understood our, yeah. our responsibility as co-founders to represent the brand um, and to tell our stories. But this is not about, you know, Bella Hadid drinking spritz, you know, uh, in some cover shoot. It's really about her integrating her experience, bringing this to her audience, which is such a massive gift to us. You know, I represent the mid to elder millennial and she represents Gen Z who, you know, ironically and crazy enough are, are already being dubbed the sober generation. So she really represents the the way that the, the next generation, those after them are, are sort of thinking about how to, how to drink, how to socialize, how to get confidence, all the things that we just talked about. So it's been really exciting just to learn from her in that, res- in that regard and, um, and to collaborate. So yeah, we're so lucky. It's so exciting to see, like you said, tapping into Bella's Bella's following, but also you just had a huge presence in New York at Fashion Week. And I'm curious why that kind of event, why that kind of crowd? What is it about the future of this movement? Or maybe I don't want to call it a movement. It's a movement. It's a movement. Well, maybe that is maybe that is a fair <laughs> word then. What is it about this collection of people, these events like Fashion Week that are very glamorous and um, you know, you're very much in the throes of New York when you're at an event like Fashion Week? What is it that makes that a good area and a good stage for this conversation to take place? You know, I just think it was very apparent, at least to me, maybe I'm close to it, but you know, back back when glam was glam, right? When fashion was, I mean, everything and labels were everything. All you ever heard about was champagne popping and this Grey Goose and that, you know, whatever it was, Bacardi, whatever was sexy at the moment. And now you're hearing about Fashion Week and it's like, oh, I, I didn't hear about one liquor brand associated I, oh, wow. at all. I mean, there I'm sure there were amazing parties thrown by whomever but at the end of the day like when you have fashion culture art beauty leading the country and helping them decide what's sexy what's cool what's in to be able to play at the level of a gray goose in 1994 or you know a moet had you know <laughs> 10 years ago like that's important it's important for exactly what we keep talking about that it's important for the mission to be able to play at that level because to me, we owe it to the guest. We owe it to the person who's going to choose this at the bar. I want them to feel like the sexiest person in the room ordering a non-alcoholic drink. And we proved that out three years ago when we started selling Kin drinks at Cafe Clover in, in, the, in the West Village, you know, where people, the drinks were so sexy and beautiful. They had, you know, sage and burnt rosemaries with this beautiful sort of smokiness sort of running through the restaurant and people would say oh we want a round of those well they didn't even ask if there was alcohol in the drink right (laughs) perfect 
perfect. I don't want to disrupt perfect. your flow. I don't want to disrupt your, your energy, your vibe. I want you to drink something that's delicious, that happens to make you feel great, that you're not going to regret tomorrow. And it does start with, you know, how high can we go in terms of, in terms of that, like, you know, glam style factor, um, if only to help the conversation and again, to, to just do right by the guest. I mm. love that. I the redefining the future love of glam and, and what does that really mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, time is a currency right now, right? It's like if time is yeah. a currency and leisure is the ultimate luxury, then what is it? What's sexier than something that's going to give you more of your time back? What's sexier than, than something that's going to make you truly experience leisure in your life? Because you have more time to do that when you're not hungover all the time <laughs> or you're not yeah. in fights with your partner all the time. You know what I mean? It's just like... Oh. Wait till you're 44. <laughs> <laughs> really start looking at time. <laughs> Golly, that is so exciting. So cool. Congratulations on all of that. That aspect of it, it's just, it's just brilliant, brilliant avenue in. And often in, in this podcast, we, we discuss leading by example. You are doing that. I want to know where you get your support from when times are not so flowery. Oh, man. Well... My people. Yeah. Certainly. I mean, there's no way in the world that I would be able to get up every day, do all the things that I need to do as a mom, which by the way, especially now with all of the work that we have on our plates, you know, if I get a fraction of that done, I'm lucky. You know, I, I, I definitely crave more time with my baby girl every day. But yeah, I mean, my my family, my partner, my husband, you know, being able to work closely with the people that you love that's nourishment because you get to see immediately right the the results of your effort I mean it's it's a really really beautiful thing I don't take it for granted at all it's always been about the people for me you know I'm, I'm yeah. depleted immediately by the wrong people in the room I'm uplifted by the right people in the room and so it's something that as I get older I'm certainly starting to appreciate a lot lot more just being able to appreciate those little moments and those folks my family certainly oh my gosh my my mom and dad are like my number one cheerleaders Oh that's the best Yeah but I do think it's it is beyond all that because I realize I almost started by by talking about my routine and and trying to just yeah. stay well right but like even if I was in perfect health, if I didn't have these people in my life, I, I would not be able to do any of it. Mm, I love that. You know, Jen, one of the things that we really try to do is put tools directly into the hands of, of the audience here at Champagne Problems. Are there three questions or, or prompts or even areas you might recommend shining light on that the audience can use at home to sort of start exploring the possibility uh, in their own lives as they as they renegotiate their their relationship with alcohol three things that they could really look at or ask themselves yeah I mean even now when when people are like oh how do you do that or they you know the the number one thing is like such disgust like how could you survive a holiday without alcohol or how could you survive a first date without alcohol <laughs> I just I like to use the Socratic approach. I don't tell them what to do. It's just like, ask yourself, why do I drink? Yeah. What is alcohol actually doing for me? Write it down and then be like, well, why? Right? So I drink alcohol because it gives me confidence. Well, why? Why do I think I need that? You think that confidence is literally coming from the bottle? Why do I need that? How is that physiologically affecting me? Where does confidence actually come from? Get really curious really curious and take it all the way down the line, start unraveling some shit. You might run into some trauma in there and that's scary for most people. <laughs> I think that's the thing I had to like come to terms with was like, once I go down this well, I might find some monsters down there. I might find some scary things, yeah. but you know what? There's amazing support. There are amazing people, podcasts, hello, um, <laughs> and things that you can um, and people you can speak to that have had ex this exact same experience, right? But I think the why exercise is just, again, if you don't get honest with yourself, no one's going to tell you to your face. They're just not, especially if you're fl like flying under the radar with this, with this impacting, right? Not this disease, not this anything. Right now, it's just an exploration. Right now, it's, is this serving me? Yes or no. Is this getting in the way of my dreams? Yes or no. If you can't get honest with yourself about that, it's going to be really, really difficult to come 
you know, around the other side of this and yeah. be able to say, you know what, nothing is standing in the way of my dreams except for me. And I'm here to support me. And I'm going to take care of my well being, my mental state, let bygones be bygones on this. And I'm going to pick my battles on that. And I'm just going to focus on the good. There's a lot of power in that. As we said, there's just thoughts are so, so incredibly powerful. Um, so that's one. Obviously, I'm a big proponent of meditation, breath work, anything that's going to get your neurochemistry to a place of support. Again, there's no perfect neurochemistry. It's just, can I get my mind, can I get my endocrine system to a place where it is supporting me in what I want, in clarity of mind, in articulation, in sex appeal, in you know, even just believing that I'm sexy, in uh, whatever it is that you want, and being able to sit down and write a business plan, whatever it is. Magical thinking is not going to get you there alone. Obviously, you need to support your homeostasis, your well-being, your temple. The third thing, you know, it's funny because it, there, there are a lot of writers that have beautiful perspectives on this. I think for me in the state of the state that I was in, the stage that I was in, I should say, in my life, I really found solace in Gabby Bernstein's writing. It's funny because it feels so far removed from like anything that I do today. And I almost I, I, I want to write her and let her know what the impact she had on me when I was 22 years old. But it was finding a resource that spoke to me in my language. That's power. Because there's no intervention, there's no book. If you don't feel seen and you can't relate, you can't see yourself in the story, that's ever going to change anything. And she was that for me, you know, when I was 22 and that's now 14 years, 15 years almost. Oh my God. Awesome answer. Awesome. That is what I see as everyone's life purpose. If you have had somebody, something, someone touch you in a way that improved your life, like at least to me, my only job is to pay that forward times a thousand, however I can. So um, I'm grateful for this opportunity to share my story. I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to answer these great questions. Trust me, I sit and I answer questions all day. They're not usually as fun and as good as this. Well, you're a wise one, Jen. That was awesome. Jen Bachelor, everybody. Jen of Ken. All right, so thank you for listening to the interview with Jen Batchelor. I would personally like to do a quick plug on Ken Euphorics because I drink their products. I personally like the Spritz. So the Spritz is a little bit more of a pick-you-up. I feel like I can recall my words better. Light Wave, I believe, is more of a calm you down, get in touch with yourself kind of a, a feel. I like to pick me up. I'm a hyperactive son of a bitch anyway, so it just plays right into my personality. I have recently replaced it for coffee in the mornings and then I also have one before I come in and do recordings. They're delightful. I, I recommend them. For the listeners who want to find Jen, you can reach out to her on her Instagram handle, Jen of Ken, J-E-N-O-F-K-I-N, or the website, KenEuphorics.com. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.